Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 38. And last Sunday's message was titled Psychological Warfare. And I think the title in itself, if you weren't here, should pique your interest. Uh, it's something that we speak about in the church, physical issues, we speak about spiritual issues, but a lot of people, there's this taboo. I just was talking about suicide in, in the opening. There's this taboo about speaking about emotional or psychological issues. But, you know, we're trichotomous beings. We're spirit we're body and we're mind. It's just the way we are. And, uh, you know, we do struggle at times with emotional issues or attacks of the enemy. And I talked about the, so I guess what I'm trying to say is I got a lot of good feedback last Sunday. A lot of people came up to me and I just know even sometimes before I do a message that certain messages are going to hit that nerve with a lot of folks. Uh, maybe even not for you particularly, but maybe somebody you know and somebody you're close to. So if you didn't get the message, it's on video on the website. And today the message is physical and spiritual healing. And I'm, I'm shuffling the chapters a little bit because it, it's, tough. <laughs> it's tough to begin with to teach like the Old Testament and the prophets. Uh, but sometimes the chapters, you have a, a really short one and a really long one. So I'm trying to kind of piece them together not only for time's sake, but also for content's sake. So we're going to look at two instances where there's a, a physical healing and there's a spiritual healing, and we're going to kind of bridge the gap between all these dispensations. You know, what was it like in the Garden uh, of Eden? What was it like before the flood? So we're going to kind of put a lot of these things together, and hopefully by the end of the day, you're going to have a more edified uh, picture of what the scripture says and, and how God's plan starts to form and how we are actually in very exciting times uh, where we are right now in history, human history. So we're going to look at this in seven parts and we're going to jump in. Isaiah 38. So it says, In those days, Hezekiah, or King Hezekiah, late 8th century B.C., in Jerusalem, he was sick and near death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Wow. So the first out of seven is Hezekiah's deadly sickness. And this probably happened sometime just before the Assyrians came down and started making a mess of the southern kingdom, licking up town after town. Uh, there's this kind of period where Hezekiah is, and apparently, according to history, he was about 39 years old when he got this news. Now, in Second Chronicles 32, what it tells us is that King Hezekiah had a major pride issue that he was dealing with. Uh, and God, at this time, allowed this sickness to run its course. Uh, pride is a, a destructive thing, it really is. And if we're smart, if we're mature as Christians... We all have a sense of pride inside. And it doesn't mean that you say, oh, I'm proud of my kid. He or she got a good grade. That's the, the terminology is a little bit different. That pride that, you know, look at me. You know, I'm great. And it's all about me being elevated in this world. Um, it's, there's a, the Bible speaks a lot about pride. And sometimes you can't even see pride. It's kind of like an internal thing that can be hidden really well. Whereas the other sins are more, well, they're, they're in your face. They're outgoing. Right? So he says... The prophet says to him, set your house in order for you shall die. I have to say that there's, you know, sometimes we read the Hebrew and, and the translated into English and we're like, well, that's pretty abrupt. But, you know, there's some other translations that kind of, you know, make the into transition into English a little smoother. But I, I actually think that's kind. I mean, if I had three months to live or six months to live, that would be great if somebody could come to me and say, hey, on this date, you're done. Um, I mean, I try to provide for my family and, and the church and set things in order, but I, I think that to me it would be merciful because you never know when the next day is going to be your last day. So the prophet had to give bad news. And folks, in leadership today, if you're a real leader, sometimes you have to give bad news. Sometimes you have to give the painful truth. And I get, this is my disdain or my problem with these feel-good preachers because I think they punk out. You know what I'm saying? Well, I don't want to... 
you know, I don't want to say anything that's going to disappoint anybody. Um, and there's, a, there, there's really a root of pride and, and narcissism in that. I want everybody to like me. I don't want to say anything that they can't be taken well. Well, where would Isaiah be if, you know, he, God would say, I can't use you, Isaiah. But there's 66 books devoted to this prophet and his faithfulness to God. He put his life on hold to serve God in the good times and the bad. So we continue on, verse 2, it says, Then Hezekiah, now this is the king, he turns his face towards the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Remember now, O Lord, I pray how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah saying, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, and I will add to your days 15 years. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. Interesting, two out of seven is Hezekiah's repentance and God's willingness to forgive him because of his repentance. And, you know, I like to kind of picture the scene. Uh, remember, Hezekiah is the king. He's supreme in that area. It's not like the three branches of government in the United States. He could give you the thumbs up and you live. He gives you the thumbs up and you die. So maybe the, the position of king uh, maybe helped to lift his heart up with pride. And folks, that could happen to us too. We could come into money. We could come into promotions. And uh, all of a sudden we start to change. We get like, like we're so great. Instead of thanking God for those blessings. So here Hezekiah is. He, he's, he's prideful. He, he finds out he's going to die. And uh, he starts to cry. He weeps bitterly. And I could see uh, Isaiah, and I'm just picturing the scene, you know, the king, he turns to the wall and he's just bawling. And he can't even look at Isaiah. Isaiah walks out of the room to give the king his dignity. And God says, hey, Isaiah, can you go back in there <laughs> and tell him, I saw, I saw your tears, I heard your prayers, I know your heart. I mean, we can cry crocodile tears and our hearts and motives are wrong, but see, God sees through those motives. So God saw a man where his motives were right. He really prayed a prayer of repentance. Now, in verse 3, he says, Hezekiah prays to God. He actually doesn't say, hey, Isaiah, Isaiah, can you go tell God this? He goes directly to God, and he's weeping. And he says, remember, Lord, how uh, I was obedient to you. Now, understand this, that we don't bargain with God. Uh, the Old Testament, I was actually talking to Russ, one of our sound guys, and just kind of talking to him about a question he had about the Bible, the Old Testament versus the New Testament, and how God transitioned a lot of things uh, to change in the New Testament. We see this in Jeremiah uh, 31, 31 through 34. But, but basically, uh, he's, in the Old Testament, obedience, God would bless his people because of obedience. And I think Hezekiah tried to make the leap. Well, but Lord, remember this, and, and I really want to serve you when I have served you. Uh, and, and in his in his limited understanding, he's just begging God, I guess, for another chance, right? So it's kind of cool because he repents. Now, the polemic or the attack on this would be like, well, what is God divided? Well, I thought this was his will. I thought he was going to die. Well, what's changed? And the truth is that his repentance, his willingness to change, changed God's decision, right? Not too hard to understand. What it shows us in the scripture is that prayer changes things. Sometimes people say, well, God is so sovereign. He's made up his mind. You know, God also wants to see his people change. I suppose, well, I don't suppose, if Hezekiah just was like, ah, what's God good for anyway? Probably would have passed away. And he would have passed away in a bad state. And some people, till the bitter end, curse God. And some, sometimes it takes a tragedy for them to turn and say, you know what? I really got to consider what God is saying through all this. You know, what have I done? Some look in the mirror. Right? That's why, you know, mirrors are important physically, but they're also important in a spiritual sense. So Hezekiah, listen, he doesn't live till a ripe old age of 90. He was 39 and he gets 15 more years. And that was merciful. You can do a lot in 15 years. That was gracious. But this is also a picture, if you think about it. And, uh, you know, when, when I try to help somebody who's Jewish to to come to the understanding of Christ, this is a picture of resurrection. And you see this a lot in the Scripture. In the Old Testament, you see a lot of pictures, believe it or not, 
types of resurrection and literal resurrections. Like people who haven't read the Bible say, wow, where is that? And I show them, I'm going to walk them through it. But 2 Kings 20, which I taught on a Wednesday night, so for some of you this might sound familiar, gives more of the historical picture of this sickness. But here in Isaiah, it gives a, a spiritual backdrop of what's going on here. So this, you know, I'm going to put in some filler from 2 Kings, and basically he says he's going to go to the house of the Lord on the third day. Right? Christ was resurrected on the third day. So this is a picture of another resurrection. He was destined to die. Without a miracle, the king was going to die. Without a miracle, don't forget this, Jerusalem was going to die because the Assyrians were going to surround it and they were far superior in their abilities than those defending Jerusalem. And Lachish just got taken. It was another high-walled city and the Assyrians were just really good at siege warfare. So you had a city that was going to die and be destroyed. You got a man who was head over that city, who was going to die. And God, in his sovereignty, changed both of them. The king lived, and the city lived, and the the Assyrians were repelled. He says in verse 6, I will defend this city. So the city was resurrected as well. Pretty neat. And again, without that, without God's intervention, both would have been gone. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually read 7 and 8, and then go to 21 and 22 about the signs of the healing. And then I'm going to go to, because I think this is really important, is Hezekiah's reflection on life and death, which we don't find in 2 Kings. So for my Wednesday night crowd, there's parallel scripture here, but Hezekiah or Isaiah adds more, and we're going to talk about that. So 7 and 8, it says, And this is the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing which he has spoken. Behold, I will bring the shadow on the sundial. So they didn't have like these nice little digital watches that I have on my wrist today. Um, I buy the cheapos, but because uh, I bang them up so much. So they had to do different things before that technology. They had the sundials. It was in a fixed position, and as the, the, the earth rotated and it changed with its perspective uh, to the sun, the shadow would change, and they would have a, a time uh, situation on the ground, all fixed pieces based on the shadow of this object that was the sundial. So he says... I will bring the shadow on the sundial which has gone down with the sun on the sundial of Ahaz 10 degrees, uh, 10 degrees backward. So the sun returned 10 degrees on the dial by which it had gone down. And then we continue to verse 21. Now Isaiah had said, let them take a lump of figs and apply it as a poultice on the boil. This was, this was Hezekiah's apparent problem, his wound, and he shall recover. And Hezekiah had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? So three is the tangible sign confirming the healing, right? So this lump of figs is interesting because this was an object. This was a focal point. Did the lump of figs heal his... Now, in the Hebrew, I don't know, he had some... It's really not important. The Bible doesn't give great details, but it is interesting. In the Hebrew, the boil, it's not like he had a pimple and the pimple was going to kill him. I got a big pimple. No, in the Hebrew, it was ulcer. So he had some type of ulcerative condition. It could have been a wound from a battle. It could have been uh, something on his leg, and, and blood just kept flowing on it, and it needed to be debrided, and it just, it just wasn't healing. It was some type of open ulcerative condition that it could have been an infection that wasn't going away. Right? We, we get these things today. So he has this going on in his body. And the lump of figs in itself, and, and listen, a lot of us, I like to eat healthy and natural, but probably his condition was going to kill him. So it wasn't the lump of figs and the poultice that was actually healing him. It was God who was healing him. But this was a focal point. This was an object lesson that God was giving to the king. Now, I can't help but, one of my, I, I find humor in certain passages of scripture and when I, when I watch it through the book and Jesus healing people and stuff, I'm like, that's so amazing. Like, sometimes he just does it with a word. Sometimes he puts his hands on somebody. Well, in one particular incident, and I always say this, Jesus couldn't pass a, a blind man or a lame man without healing them. You know, you wonder why when he slept, he slept really good in the scripture. Because his day was just loaded with helping people. But one of these, one of these times, there was a blind man, and I love this. And, and you could just picture everybody like kind of E.F. Hutton, you know, Jesus speaks, Jesus moves, everybody's quiet. What's he going to do? And Jesus spits on the ground, and he starts making um, mud with the, his spit and the dirt 
and he puts it on the guy's eyes. And maybe some people are like, ew. Listen, this guy was blind. He wouldn't care what Jesus did as long as he got healed. So that was, that was an object. Was it his spit and the, and the dirt made in mud? Was, you know, people would be like trying to sell mud from the Middle East to say this is going to heal you. But basically, this was also an object lesson. This was an object that people could see. It was the power of God that did it, right? Just like the lump of figs. It was the power of God. It wasn't the lump of figs. So, you know, I say this too, and, and um, a focal point or an object lesson. Listen, you could have come in here. You could have got up at 6 o'clock this morning and said, you know what? I've seen enough evidence. I, I trust Jesus as my Lord. This 6 o'clock this morning, somebody might have said, I trust Christ as my Lord and Savior. The evidence is real. I, I'm going to start following him. But maybe after the service, you come forward at an altar call, and you take that step, and you receive Jesus, or you repeat the prayer. Again, it's, it's a focal point. It's an object. But, but, you know, when I went up to receive the Lord uh, 20-something years ago, I don't know, maybe I did it the night before or Friday, but Sunday was the day that I actually walked up. So it was, it was almost like as human beings, we always kind of got to hold on to the tangible. And that's the, that's the difficulty with somebody who's a brand-new believer. They, they're finding their way. They're really not sure about this new relationship with Christ. What do I do? What do I say? How do I pray? Is there some ritual I have to do? But the beautiful thing is it's a relationship. Now, there are going to be times when we're weak in our faith. There are going to be times, and, and especially with Hezekiah, that he was, he was going through this emotional roller coaster. And, and he needed that tangible. According to Second Kings, which has more dialogue, uh, Isaiah kind of gives Hezekiah the choice. He says, do you want the sundial to go forward or backwards? Right? And Hezekiah wants it more difficult. Well, if we stand around here long enough, it's going to move forward. Well, how do I know that's really that, you know, I, I, time got away from me or actually God did it? So Hezekiah goes, it's a more difficult thing. Make time go backwards. Because that's something that's unmistakable. So that's what God does. He makes it go 10 degrees backwards. And again, when we go through trials, sometimes it affects us uh, emotionally, right? And we need more of that. I, I, just, I just need something. I need, to, I need something tangible. And this is what Hezekiah was doing. So you had two things going on. You had the sundial, right? But you also had the lump of figs and the poultice that was put on, on the wound. So I don't want to get too deep into this, but... I just thought it was fascinating when I was reading it. You know, Jesus said when it comes to the Holy Spirit in John chapter 3, just like what I was saying before about somebody coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So in John chapter 3, Jesus is trying to explain to one of the most prominent religious leaders, Nicodemus, in the most prominent religious sect at the time, what it means to have a relationship with God. If you're new to the faith, read John chapter 3. It is just so awesome. Right? This guy, this educated, you know, super smart, you know, you, and you wonder why he came to Jesus at night. Maybe he struggled with some pride issues. He's like, I can't let everybody see. They're all looking at me. And, but I, I just, oh, Jesus, I got to go talk to him. So he comes by at night to talk to Jesus. And Jesus explains to him. He even speaks to him about what it means to be born again. Well, if we put a, a, a sign on our church that says, hey, we're a born again church, the title doesn't mean anything. What Jesus was saying was, you, you, you become like a baby again when you, when you trust Jesus. You could be 80, 90, but you're like a baby now spiritually because this whole thing about a relationship with God is new to you. And Jesus speaks about the Holy Spirit. He speaks about how the Holy Spirit comes into a person, and he, he basically says, and I'm paraphrasing, Nicodemus, you can't see the Holy Spirit. You can't see him. You can't see him enter a person when they get saved. But I will tell you this, Nicodemus, like the, the wind which you can't see blows against the trees and the limbs and they sway and you see the leaves move and blow off of it. He goes, you can see the evidence of the Holy Spirit working in a new believer. I love that. And we are, I have to say this, we, and I can tell you, my, my pastor always said to me, he, he would I'd always say, well, tell me something else. And he, he would always say, just, Joe, just stay humble. And that's really good advice. When we act like children not immature, (laughs) when we are like children, innocent before the living God. He can really work with us. When we act like he owes us something or, you know, we have this great gift and, and, you know, God should be happy to have me on his side, there's not much he can do with us. have to remain humble. So that's a beautiful thing there. 
But the question is, what did he do? How did the sundial go backwards? Did he change the earth's axis? Did he slow down the rotation? We don't know. We know it was a miracle. Did the, the long day now, like Joshua 10, remember the long day of Joshua in that battle? Lord, I can't, I can't win this battle because the sun's going down. So the Lord gave him extra hours in the day to finish that battle, right? So he gave Hezekiah as a sign more daylight, the, the shadow changed. So was it a longer day that day? And then people on the other side of the planet said, oh, it was a longer night. Boy, this night doesn't seem like it's ever going to end. You see what I'm saying? Because they're on the other side. I don't know. Sometimes the Bible is silent on that. But Hezekiah, you know, he, he sees this miracle. Second Chronicles 32 gives us a little more as well. It tells us that Hezekiah the king, kind of, he did repent, but then he kind of went back to his old ways a little bit, and then he repented again. And you know what's really cool? It shows that we're a work in progress. And if you're here this morning and you say, you know what, I did try to follow God, but I'm so frustrated with myself. And, you know, you're your biggest critic. Stop beating yourself up. Because even godly people in the Scripture had this issue. And I'm not saying that we should fall back on that and make excuses for our behavior. But I am saying that we're a work in progress. You know, sometimes people think and they end up leaving the church or walking away from the faith because they don't have a full understanding. They think, well, I thought my addiction issue was just going to disappear. I thought my marriage was going to magically just be healed. Remember, there's two people in a marriage. (laughs) Both people have to be trying. So sometimes people don't see the results fast enough. They get down on themselves. They don't see the results in themselves, and they they struggle. But I just want to encourage you with this, because Hezekiah did struggle his whole life with pride, on and off. But he sincerely changed at times, and he sincerely did want to please God. We continue, verse 9. This is cool. You don't see this in 2 Kings. It says, This is the writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. So Isaiah is speaking of the chronicling of Hezekiah, writing down. This was so important to him that he wrote down his experience, which he might not have written down if he never was confronted with this situation, this trial. So sometimes we, we look at, at trials in life and we get angry and we get upset. But sometimes trials are designed to open our eyes to things we're not seeing, folks. Because I've got to tell you something, I could do the same thing all week long. I've got to do this, I've got to do that. I've got calendars. I write stuff in my boxes. i get calendars with big boxes. But sometimes God diverts me and says, no, I don't want you to do that today. I want you to reflect on this or that. So let's go on. Uh, so Isaiah, or excuse me, Hezekiah, He says, I said, in the prime of my life, I shall go to the gates of Sheol or the realm of the dead. I am deprived of the remainder of my years. I said, I shall not see Yah, or God, the Lord, in the land of the living. I shall observe man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My lifespan is gone, taken from me like a shepherd's tent. I have cut off my life like a weaver. I have cut off. Interesting, I'll get back to that. He cuts me off from the loom. From day until night, you make an end of me. I've considered until morning like a lion. So he breaks all my bones. From day until night, you make an end of me like a crane or a swallow. So I chattered. I mourned like a dove. My eyes fail from looking upward. O Lord, I am oppressed. Undertake for me. What shall I say? Now it starts to change here. He has both spoken to me, and he himself has done it. I shall walk carefully all my years in the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live, and all these things is the life of my spirit. So you will restore me and make me live. Indeed, it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness. But you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption. You have cast all my sins behind your back. Forgiveness. For Sheol cannot thank you. Death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your truth. After death, that's it. No second chances. The living, the living man, he shall praise you. As I do this day, the Father shall make known your truth to the children. Hopefully we are passing our spiritual understanding to our kids. The Lord was ready to save me. Therefore, we will sing my songs with stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of the Lord. So... Four out of seven is Hezekiah's reflection. You see uh, how things change. In verses 10 to 14, Hezekiah reflects on how close he came to death. This was a retrospective view. He starts looking back. 
And, you know, it's neat. A lot of Christians have journals, and they write things down. You know, I wrote, in some of my most difficult times in Psalms in my Bible, I wrote notes, dates, things that happened to me, things I was going through. And I look back and go, wow, God was faithful. I I was delivered. But that was a rough time in my life. So sometimes we do that. We chronicle. We write things down. We journal because we want to remember. You know what I'm saying? We don't want to forget especially the faithfulness of God. He uses metaphors like the folding of a shepherd's tent. There goes my life, folded like a tent. Fabric cut off from the loom, an attack of a lion, a bird in distress, right? Verses 15 through 18, Hezekiah speaks of God's sovereignty and his healing. But he also takes personal responsibility. This is very important because we live in a culture where (laughs) it's just a culture. And it's affecting even people my age and older. It isn't a, it's not an age thing. Where people just want to blame everybody else for their problems. You know? Um, could be a relationship. Well, it's always the other person's fault. Do we ever reflect and say, hey, wh- what do I own in this? You know what I'm saying? But if it's, you know, blame, people blaming their parents, people blaming the government, people blaming their teachers. Just a lot of blame game. And listen, I went through hard times too. I can't look back at my life and blame all these people for some of the things that I suffered. I got to move on. But he also takes personal responsibility, basically giving the responsibility to himself to how he ended up in that place. And I think that's fascinating. And I think that I know that I've had some near-death experiences. I lived a very interesting life, and I've done a lot of reflection. And uh, I always come to the conclusion that God is good. Listen, I got up this morning. I can breathe. I can walk. I can talk. God is good. (laughs) So sometimes just praise God for the little things. Verses 19 through 20, Hezekiah's reflection is psalm-esque. You know, he's, it's almost like the psalms. He's praising God. He's thanking him. He goes through where he was and where he came. He has a new appreciation for God, for life, for discipline, right? For, for priorities in life, for serving God. We talked about this at the men's group Saturday morning. You know, you, you save for a while, you have a desire. Well, what can I do? What little thing can I do to please God? Because you, you get it. You understand. And it, listen, it's not, it's not a bargaining chip. Well, if I do this for God, then he's going to do this. It doesn't work like that. The world works like that. He saved us first. He loved us first. We take hold of his love for us. And then we just want to know, what can I do? What, what small thing can I do to, to bless God? And again, it's, it's something that we should do. We should also ponder salvation. Not let the busyness of the world take us to a point where, okay, it's Sunday after Pastor Joe's done yapping. I've got this to and this to do. I've got this to do this week. Just to take a, a moment in life and think about the Lord. Think about your standing with the Lord, your relationship with God. You know, is, is this something, I've been coming to this church for a while, is this something that I should consider? You know, do I really know Jesus? Do I, I call myself a Christian. I know I'm in a denomination, but... Do I really have a relationship with the Lord? These are important questions to reflect on. You know, I think about, like, with with all this reflection, (laughs) sometimes I thought about, like, what would it be like if I was never born? I mean, is there, like, a holding place with souls? Are they conscious? Are they waiting for... I don't know this, and I'm probably freaking some of you out right now. But I'm like, well, God gave me life. Like, so before my birth date, or before I was conceived in my mother's womb... Did I have any knowledge of anything? I don't remember. <laughs> but, uh, you know, life is an interesting thing. He's given us a consciousness. He's made, made us a living spirit, right? I think, therefore, I am. You know what I'm saying? I know I exist. But what was it like five years before I existed? Right? So some of you can be like, man, he really creeped me out this morning. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to go back to that church. But, but it just kind of gets the wheels turning. All right, maybe I'm the only strange person who thinks like that. And I can't dwell on it for too long. But, but I think about, well, this is, life is precious, folks. Life is precious. And sometimes we don't really realize the gravity of that until we go to a funeral. And the closer somebody is to us, it hits us more, more, more hard. And it's something that we have to consider. Okay, we're going to jump to Isaiah 35. Chronologically, because the, the, um, this is a short chapter. Chronologically, this actually comes way after 38. So in 38, fascinating, God's speaking to the children of Israel. Um, 
8th century to the turn of the 7th century BC, yeah, yeah, a long time ago, different language, different people, we can get some things out of it. And it's, it's like God, you, 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 he's got that, and if we're in a timeline, he's there, we're here. Chapter 35, he shoots over us somewhere in our future, could be 2018, 1920, I don't know, I don't predict the future, false prophets do that. But at some point in time, he gives a, an encouraging message of this millennial kingdom, this beautiful kingdom that he's going to set up, this utopia on earth that man has been trying to do for thousands of years, but it never works. Um, you ever read about these societies where secluded societies where a bunch of people leave and they go to another country or isolated area and they try to set up? It never works. There's always some type of problem or some type of weird thing that happens. The Lord Jesus is going to, and this is something we need to look forward to, he's going to set up a, a beautiful utopia right here. And it's not a fantasy, it's reality. It's coming. And I'll make my case for that. So, chapter 35, 1 and 2, it says, The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them. Now, this is kind of coming off of 34, but I'll, I'll give you context. And the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. Wow, the desert, sand, hot, mirages, it's going to blossom be beautiful as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice. Even with joy and singing, the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The excellence of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. So five out of seven is, you know, this beautiful millennial kingdom that's in the earth's future. There's a restoration of the land and the people and the desert. The, the deserts that we see, how many you know, square miles of wasteland? You go out there, you don't have enough supplies, you, it's the elements are going to kill you. God's going to turn that all around. So even the beautiful things that in, in those days, beautiful cities, beautiful lush areas, forests, they're going to look at these deserts that God transforms and they're going to be like, wow, that's beautiful. So God is going to do a work on planet Earth. He's going to change the topography. He's going to change the geology. He's going to change a lot of things, and I look forward to that. And I can tell you, I've been learning so much about the millennial kingdom, I long for that. The ecological system is going to change. Remember, after the Great Tribulation and the Battle of Armageddon, Earth is going to be pretty banged up. So God is going to do this restorative work. Verse 3, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful-hearted, Be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. The water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. Six out of seven is this, a lot of things are happening at once, okay? There's a physical makeover to the planet. This is future, personal, and spiritual. And God's doing a work on the earth, the people, and the condition of the people's hearts. Now, we can see this starting in verse 4, where he goes back to probably the Battle of Armageddon, the last siege of Jerusalem, where he's going to say, my people, you're waiting for me, second coming, I'm going to save you, I'm going to come with vengeance. Um, so you see that where everything starts. In verse 3, it says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Now, this is also found in Hebrews. If we can turn to Hebrews 12 in the New Testament. Hebrews 12. Starting with verse 12. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many have become defiled. So context, let's go to the New Testament first. This was a situation where, actually if you go before, if you read the whole chapter, it's a great chapter on discipline. You know, again, you're not going to hear this in those feel-good preachings, but as believers, we're not spoiled king's kids. We're king's kids, but God wants to do a work in us. So in the New Testament, 
it says to the Christians, don't be surprised when you do wrong that God doesn't discipline lovingly to you, to help you. Because remember, we also represent Christ. And I'm sure many people over the millennia have been turned off by believers who call themselves Christians and were really no different and sometimes worse than the way the world was acting. So discipline is important. What he's saying in the New Testament is once the discipline is over, just like a, a good parent disciplines their children and then restores them, right? You don't want to be, and some people have had rough relationships where their parents were always wrathful and they have a distorted picture of a parent. But what God does is he tries to correct the behavior and then he says, okay, come on, come on back. Let's work together. I forgive you. You've repented. Let's move on. And that's beautiful. So in the New Testament, there were those that were uh, very carnal believers, weak in their faith, doing the wrong thing. God had to deal with them. But then he wants to, them also to be strengthened after the discipline period over. Now, in, in Isaiah's context, what happens? The earth is duped by this future Antichrist. Many follow him. Many worship him. Well, they find out once he gets total control. And you see globalism at work today. There's this elite group of people from different countries that really want to control everything. The banks, the military, a code of conduct, uh, they don't like our Second Amendment. There's a lot of things that they would like to get rid of so that everybody could kind of coalesce and there could be a few people running everything, and they say it'll be better. You know, you, you be careful when government says, give us more power, everything will be better. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people buying into it here in our culture, but it's not good. It takes away our freedoms. But... So there's, there's this person, this future Antichrist, will, and he has a name. I don't know what his name is. Um, but he's going to rise to power, probably in Europe, galvanize a lot of the nations in a time of ver great difficulty, and he's going to have a lot of control. Some people will worship him as a, a Messiah figure. So the world's going to be duped. This is a fact. You can see it's starting to come together already. And after this situation, when the Lord returns, it's going to be obvious. Well, he's the real Messiah. We really got duped by this, this other guy here. He even set himself up to, to be worshipped as God. So God has to discipline the earth, unfortunately. But then the Lord comes back, and there's a great repentance. Even nations are turning to the living Christ. And, and even in, in great groups, there's a great revival. That's a great picture. You know, I pray on a regular basis for revival for our country, a real honest-to-goodness revival where people are just, it just spreads like wildfire, just loving the Lord and, and trying to do good through their neighborhoods, trying to change things in their little sphere of influence. Revivals are beautiful. So we're gonna, the earth is going to see this, and then the Lord, of course, is going to forgive, and he's going to move on, just like he does with us personally. See, sin has consequences, and God disciplines, but we also have a responsibility to do right, don't we? You know, I do a lot of things up here, and it's difficult because when I put my message together, I have to reach people who, they, they just came to faith or they're not really sure, so I, I explain a lot. That's for them. But I also need to reach the folks here that, that have been Christians for a while, and they're looking for some meat that they can take home. Um, I also want to give glory to God. So there's a multifarious kind of thing going on in the pulpit on a particular Sunday. But for those that don't know the Lord, I present the evidence. That's my job. That's why I study. That's why I pray. I can't make anybody get saved. It's up to you to make that leap. You see what I'm saying? So I present the evidence. I've done what I need to do. You take the evidence. You either try to fight with it, destroy it, counter it, come back to me, or you accept it and say, you know what, this is truth. I know where I need to go from now. You see what I'm saying? So... We also have a responsibility to, to get saved, to, to come to the living God. That's our responsibility if we don't already know him. For those of us that already are believers, it's our responsibility to grow in his word and, his, and walk with him. Verse 5 to 6a, we continue on. It speaks about, you know, the eyes of the blind being open, the ears of the deaf being unstopped, the lame shall leap like a deer, all these things that are happening. So the sick and the disabled are healed. Now, this is a foretaste, or actually, Jesus gave us a foretaste at his first coming. And the more I'm studying this whole millennial kingdom, the more I'm actually going back to the Gospels and saying, wow, there's a lot of things that Jesus showed us, even subtly, that we might not pick up right away. 
So if we could turn to Matthew 11, verse 2. It's my job to tie everything together. So remember, Isaiah comes first. Matthew 11 comes some 700 years later when Christ comes to the earth and walks the earth. Here's John the Baptist, one of the greatest prophets that ever lived. He's going through a trial. He gets imprisoned by the authorities. He's having a little bit of a crisis of faith. And Jesus is incredibly gracious to him when we go through the entire chapter. But check this out. It says, And when John, John the Baptist, had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, So the disciples go to Jesus and say, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? (laughs) You know, sometimes we can even pray in our prayers like a manipulative prayer. You know, God, I don't want to go through this. Do you really care about me? Listen, we can do that with people, but God doesn't fall for it. But check this out. Jesus answered. He didn't say yes, but watch what he says. He says, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. We're not always going to like the things that God does. We're not always going to like his sovereign will. But when we have a relationship with somebody, you know, there's not everything we like about that person. Now, God is perfect, so we have to trust his will. You see what I'm saying? So this is what they, Jesus gives this information to John's disciples, and they give it back to John. But what Jesus did was temporary, right? Lazarus was raised from the dead. Now, of course, he died again, because if not, he'd be on the, all the talk show circuits, I like to say. He'd be around going, yeah, it's been a wild ride the last 2,000 years. So, you know, people were healed and then they died. Lazarus was resurrected after three or four days and then he died. So this was a little foretaste to yearn for this millennial kingdom where it's going to be permanent, right? In, in uh, you know, the disciples' prayer, they say, the Lord's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Do we just... And sometimes people memorize that, they repeat it over and over again, but do we really understand what it means? It means when we say that and we read that and we believe that, that the Lord's kingdom is actually going to come on earth. And some, the, the older that we are, we just have seen things, I've seen things come and go for 50 years. But in my heart, I know that one day the Lord is going to bring his will and his, you know, on earth as it is in heaven. Do we yearn for that? Do we yearn for that? Is there anything in this world that could make us not yearn for that and say, oh, can you delay that? Right? And the more mature we get, the more we desire and yearn for this in this fallen world. Verses 6 through 7b, um, he speaks about abundance replacing lack. So he speaks about streams in the desert and the parched ground becoming a pool. I don't know. I, I just have this picture in my mind that if we were to watch it happen, God, I don't know, we be standing on the precipice of a desert and all of a sudden you see water coming up and you see trees growing. What was it like when God created the earth? You got to read Genesis. Really, really cool stuff. And each day you see him create these things and then he creates humans. Wow, that's exciting. So the, the millennial kingdom, you're going to see changes. Now this is a t- topographical change but it's also uh, spiritual. There's actually a devotional called Streams in the Desert. Many of you have that. And what it is, is when you start to read God's Word, it waters your soul. When we go through this world, it's like a spiritual desert. And if we're believers, we yearn for that water, as somebody in the desert would. But we yearn for it spiritually. Now, I'll just go through this kind of little interesting point on a science um, understanding, and I talked about this with the young adults, also with a science major a few weeks ago. When we look at the changes in the earth, they've gone through different stages. The first stage was pre-sin. You read read, uh, Genesis, there was these these aquifers, they they were like pressurized. God had like a terrarium or a a greenhouse effect. There was a water canopy above. And you can see how the reptiles could have dominance in this area. Well, does the Bible talk about dinosaurs? Of course it does. Absolutely. So pre-sin, the Garden of Eden, everything's beautiful, right? Lush, green, nobody's dying. Um, Everything's just perfect environmental conditions. Post-sin, pre-diluvian, 
which means after the fall, so two, stage two, the earth changes. Post-sin, pre-diluvian. Pre-diluvian means before the flood of Noah. Things start to change, right? Uh, the cherubim has a flaming sword, doesn't allow Adam and Eve or any humans to come back into this pristine garden. But things are still good. The third stage is post-diluvian, which is what we live in now. Post-diluvian means after the flood. So when you read Genesis, it speaks about, and it's kind of funny because I talk to people in, in the young adults group, science majors, they're a little skeptical. Why? Hey, what, what do you think about Pangaea? Well, continents look like they could kind of fit. What about in the Indi Indian Ocean, something that looks like it used to be uh, a landmass? I'll give you that too. Because if you look at pre-diluvian, there appeared to be more land on the earth, read Genesis. There's that, that um, sort of hydrosphere, but a, a water canopy that surrounds the atmosphere. Woolly mammoth, right? They were found flash frozen in the, in the uh, Antarctic, I believe, and uh, they found vegetation in a woolly mammoth's stomach. Well, how does that happen? Well, how does that happen? It means that that animal was flash frozen. So when when, the, when the, the, the environment changed post-Diluvian, the, the greenhouse effect is now removed. There's more water on the planet than there is land. It affected certain animals, and they, ended up, they started to die out. It's all in there. It's all in the scripture. So we're actually in the post-Diluvian world. Now, in the millennial kingdom, what is God doing? He's doing a restorative work, and we look forward to that. The lion lays down with the lamb. The child plays by the cobra hole. There's no danger. There's no more war, right? So God's doing this remaking of not only civilization, but the topography of the, of the earth. If you actually follow it, I'm actually going to do a timeline probably next Sunday. It makes perfect sense. And it certainly fits with good science. It really does. Pretty neat, isn't it? So you see these four stages. Um, also, you see the progression of healing over time. In the garden, there was no death because there was no sin. Post-sin, sin entered the world, death entered the world, right? We live in that, that unfortunately, post-fall, post-Diluvian time period. However, in the Millennial Kingdom, actually, when we read more of the Millennial Kingdom, it, it looks like there's going to be no disability, no infirmity. So I'm looking forward to that. The sooner the better. <laughs> so you can see how, uh, based on God's will, you see these progressions happen in the world. We're kind of in the middle right now. But we're looking forward to the final result of what he's going to do as he remakes the heavens and the earth. Last few verses, 8. A highway shall be there, again the millennial kingdom, and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The, the unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast go up on it. It shall not be found there. But the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return. And come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy in their heads, or on their heads, they shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Seven out of seven is this not only pristine environment, but this highway, probably really to Jerusalem, that points to Jesus ruling and reigning in Jerusalem as the king of the world. The, the road speaks about safety, it speaks about protection, it speaks about convenience. But what, what this also shows is, and this is just a discussion that theologians have where some say, well, there's going to be no, there's only going to be the redeemed in the millennial kingdom. No, it's not, because there's certain people who are not going to be on that road. And then, so let me just go through this real quick. There's a last rebellion, and then everything is made perfect. So let me just go through these steps from where we are in the future. The Lord comes for his saints, known as the harpazo in the Greek or the rapture. Uh, as a transliteration of Latin. The Ezekiel 38 and 39 battle, which we covered, which is actually starting in the Golan Heights right now between Israel and Iran. You know, the media is preoccupied with stupid things and they're not really covering things that can affect us globally. So you see this incredible battle and all the players are actually in Syria right now as we speak. This has not happened in 2,700 years. Um, the tribulation period and the great tribulation, the battle of Armageddon, the second coming, the Lord comes back, right? When he comes back, Satan is thrown into the abyss. Then there's the millennial kingdom, millennial meaning a thousand. There'll be a thousand years of this incredibly blissful, utopian, peaceful period. There'll be a last rebellion where Satan will be released for a, for a time and 
talk about a perfect environment like the Garden of Eden, there'll be another perfect environment and people will still rebel against God. After that last rebellion, Satan is cast into the lake of fire. There's judgment, the great white throne judgment, and then a complete remaking of the heavens and the earth. So I like chronology, and if you look at chronology, this is the earth's future whether we want to believe it or not. Now I have friends who love this world so much that they said to me, (laughs) when the rapture comes and a lot of you people start disappearing, then I'm going to believe. And if you know, if you evangelize, you've probably heard this before. And I say, why would you want to go through that period? It's going to be a horrible period. You read about the judgments in Revelation. Nobody has to go through that. But people do. And the question is, which road are you going to take from here? The wide road that Jesus said leads to destruction? Or the narrow road where people find eternal life? And he basically said there's more people on the wide road than the narrow road. You want to take the highway of holiness or the way of all flesh that the majority of the world is on, right? And what is holiness? Holiness is something where we, we change. We, we look more like Christ than we do the world. Is it a perfect thing while we're on the earth? No. No. Because every Christian goes through a period some more than others, where they're just not being holy. So, but the desire is to, for God to change us to his liking. I'm not always holy. Sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not. But, but that's, the, that's the goal, right? So sometimes people look at holiness as, well, I have to take a vow of poverty and chastity and all these itties, um, and that's not holiness. That's religion, religion. That's ascetism. That's all these things that God did never asked us to do. Some of the things people do, the flagellations, where the, even in the, in the Christian denominations where they whip themselves to expiate the, the sins and stuff, it's weird. It's not Christianity. Holiness happens through a relationship with Christ, and it's a, it's a process where he changes us. And 10 years later, your family or friends look at you and go, boy, you've changed. That's a really good feeling because it shows that God is moving me in, in a positive direction. So holiness, would you... Would you like to be holy? Do you desire the things of God? Are you thirsty for spiritual things? I could tell you this, that everyone in the world, if you ask them, every single person on this planet wants physical healing, but not everybody wants spiritual healing. And that leads to salvation. That That healing can start today and put you on the right road, the narrow road, the highway to holiness, by trusting Christ as your Lord and Savior. Are you ready for that today? Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m., And Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.